bonjour and bienvenue to Battle Royale, where we are passing judgment on all the kings and emperors of France from Clovis to Napoleon III. Who will be selected as the creme de la creme and who will be sent to the guillotine? Je m'appelle Ben Clark. And I'm Liza Summers. And today we are once again not raiding anyone. We are continuing our part two. Uh, journey into the life of Joan of Arc. Yes, with part two. Looking at awesome babe. We encourage you all to listen to part one first, because otherwise you might be very lost. Uh, but just, uh, It's your choice. But just to remind listeners where we are in, in Joan's yeah. story, um, would we like to recap? Eliza recap? What- we could do an Eliza recap okay, of what we've covered so far. Okay, so she's this peasant girl living her peasant life, and then she suddenly <laughs> hears the voice of God, la da 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 da, da and they're like, "You gotta go get that king crowned." And she's like, "Okay, I'll do that." So she goes, and people like, "Nah, uh, and she's like, "Yeah, uh, uh," and they're like, "Nah, uh, uh," and they're like, "She's like, yeah, uh, uh," and they're like, "Okay, uh huh, we believe you now. <laughs> Let's go and." Convince the Dauphin. So la da 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 da. She dresses up as a boy, which she then goes, oh, I'm going to fully commit to this forever after my rest of my life. But who can blame her? And then she goes, la la la, meets the prince. And the prince is like, oh, she's not such a bad person. Okay, I'll follow her because she, she's going to help me get that crown. So then la da 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 da, a few fights later where she doesn't even actually kill anybody because she's just. They, like, keep hustling her away from the battlefield. They're like, stop trying to die. She's like, I just want to fight. They're like, no. <laughs> she they she achieves in her first part of her mission of getting the king crowned at Rams. And then they're like, okay, now that we've done that at Rams, you can, like, la-di-da-di-da, go back and live a, women's li- a woman's life. She's like, I don't think so. And that's where we left off. Lovely. And and why and why does she not want to quit? Cause she hasn't finished her mission. Cause it was yeah. a two-parter. The second part is like our episode is to get rid of the English. Which is not <laughs> like our episode because we are English speakers. But in our episode being a two-parter. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um Yeah, so that is the yeah, the second half of her journey. That's an Eliza recap for you. Yes. And we also talked about the, the Siege of Orléans as well, which is... The, yeah, I said battles. Biggest, yeah, but that's a, that's a big one. Oh, and from this point, Joan is called the Maid of Orléans. That's like her nickname. Nice. Because Orléans was like the big sign that she was correct or whatever. You know, if I had to take a title, though, I'd totally want to go with like the crone. <laughs> the if you had to t- pick between the the crone, the mother, and the, and the maid. <laughs> yep, I'm going the crone. Yep. Um, so yeah, we've pretty much so we've we've pretty much recapped it. So you know, just before we continue that, I just thought of thought yeah. I was like, I'd be so good at drunk history. One of those episodes. Oh. <laughs> Seriously, they should I, hire me. I would make awesome episodes. I'm pretty sure we've had like a suggestion that we should do like a drunk history like podcast. <laughs> yeah, if we did drunk history or just an Eliza off her meds recap. It's <laughs> really every time because it was recorded usually in the evenings when my ADD meds have worn off. Um, so the newly crowned King Charles VII of France and many of his close advisors, they did not take kindly to Joan's continued outspokenness Middling. and bossiness. 
Oh my god, yeah. I just thought of Scooby Doo, and I was like, when they're like in those meddling. This meddling maid. Um, so she insisted that Charles march on Paris um, before the English had time to sort of reinforce it. Yeah. Because the English had been caught off guard. Yeah, to get their shit together. Yeah, the English had been caught off guard by the French march Apparently. to Rennes. And this is very shortly after their armies had been like destroyed in the Loire Valley. So Joan is like, let's go to Paris like before they well, got time to like regroup and strategize. This is something that Charles it's failed like, mm. to do. <laughs> the English force in the capital quadrupled um, <sighs> while the new king the new king hesitated. So the reason for this hesitation is not necessarily because Charles was a coward, although he definitely was a bit of a coward. Uh, it's because he and many of his advisors, including Yolande actually on this point. Yeah. Uh, at this point, uh, saw a more diplomatic path to taking to retaking Paris. So Paris, as we know, it's always been more leaning to the Burgundian side of yeah. the conflict. And at this point in the war, the Burgundians are starting to reconsider their alliance with England. Mm-hmm. So Yolande and those around her kind of think, oh, well, if we can get Burgundy to turn back to the king's side, not only will we be a lot stronger than England, but we'll also basically just get the, the doors of Paris opened for us because the Duke easy, of Burgundy kind of controls that situation. I mean, the people of Paris, they kind of hate everyone, yeah. but they hate the Burgundians the, the least. <laughs> oh, I always feel as though they hate whoever's in charge. Well, they they haven't necessarily hated the Burgundians as much when they've been in charge. They hate the English now that the English are in charge, mm. but they're kind of like, well, we'd rather have the English in charge than the Dauphin because the Dauphin's now thought of as like a murderer like he murdered the last duke of burgundy so Mm. yeah but i keep saying the dauphin we can now call him king charles because he's been crowned uh, and he's also technically been the king for like seven years um (laughs) so (laughs) yeah (laughs) so king charles is suddenly distancing himself from joan and it's probably partially motivated by the fact that the burgundians and by extension the parisians hated her and saw her Mm. as a witch and therefore, sort of continuing to associate with her was not great for diplomacy. Um, especially since Joan and those who supported her continued to sort of agitate against the Burgundians. And, mm. uh, like, Joan herself wasn't necessarily anti, like, the, the Burgundians Burgundian. rejoining the cause. Because she does see them as French. Yeah, she's just anti-English. And she, she sends a, a letter to the, to the Duke of Burgundy oh, saying he should, like, bend the knee to the rightful king um and that sort of thing and this didn't this didn't help this didn't go down well not first sassy letters so meanwhile while jones sort of strategy is diverging from that of the kings um mm. the king's counselors including both the archbishop of Reims and our old friend georges de la tremouille uh <laughs> they start to sort of close ranks against joan mm. and uh, even like queen yolande starts to have her doubts as uh, Joan starts appearing more like a, a, a liability than a trump card, which she was yeah. previously. The most powerful man who still supported Joan at this point was the Duke of Alençon, the yeah. fair duke. Yes. Because um, they had developed uh, quite a bond. Yeah. Joan even stayed at one of his castles during the Loire nice. campaign. And when she and Alençon left to rejoin uh, the fighting, Joan told uh, Alençon's wife, uh, Joan of Orléans, yeah. she said, Lady, have no fear. I will return him safely to you in the same state he is now, or even better. Ah! 
And I find this quote rather bittersweet because Alençon would return to the Loire and live a long life, but both Jones would die young, sadly. Aww. So, yeah. So back to the present. Uh, Joan had been at the height of her power from May to July 1429, between her victory at Orléans yeah. and Charles's coronation. But now okay. that Charles was in a better position, he felt he had more options, he didn't yeah, see like... the war as urgently as Joan saw yeah. it. And as I mentioned last episode, jo- Joan has this kind of fatalistic idea that she's not going to last very long. Yeah, um, yeah. She says, I-, I will only last a year and not much more. And you can kind of see why, because Joan at this point has had a lot of close scrapes. She's been wounded three times at this point, Um, like even with the commanders around her trying to keep her off the front lines. And she's just got a huge target on her back. She goes charging into battle with this like glowing white armor, waving this giant white banner. Um, You're getting a sword. She's very easy to She's like painting a target on her back. Yeah, so she's been, like, shot twice, and also someone dropped a rock on her head once. Oh my god. Um, yeah, over the course of um, her career so far, which has been um, a- about uh, four months of fighting. Yeah, not even six. No, sorry, three months of fighting. Yeah. Damn. Um, cursed. Yeah. She's not cursed, she's just got a big target on, on her, not, not even on her back, on her, like, forehead. <laughs> So Joan, she wants a, a short, sharp end to the war, but short and sharp are not really King Charles VII's style. And mm. uh, this is partly why the end of the Hundred Years' War is going to be so long and, and torturous, and it will be won through diplomacy and patience as much as military victories. Oh. But uh, Joan doesn't do diplomacy or patience very well. Nice. That's not her style. So me. Yeah, so while Charles sits in his ivory tower, Joan is hanging out with the average people of France, like soldiers who just want to get home to their families, young peasant women who fear what will happen to them if the English start regaining Mm. territory. So Joan wants this war to end, and the only way to do that in her eyes is through an all-out victory. And she's been doing well. She's had nothing but victories since she started. So you can understand why she's so frustrated that Charles... Um, is stalling now and losing precious yeah. time. Joan and Alençon did eventually manage to convince Charles to let them take the royal army to the hill of Saint-Denis on the outskirts of Paris uh, oh. to sort of threaten the city. And yeah. eventually he even joined the army in person. Um, oh, damn. But the whole time Charles was negotiating truces with the English and the Burgundians. So, so basically Joan wants to fight and Charles doesn't want to fight. And Joan expected Paris to capitulate like so many other cities and towns before and like open its gates to Charles. But as we've learned and we'll continue to learn on this podcast. That's not Paris's way. Paris is a different beast <laughs> to the rest of France. Got a man of its own. And yeah, we've talked about Paris's loyalties. Paris has a very negative idea of Joan at this point. Um, mm. And the English are kind of whipping them up into a Friendly. sort of paranoia about what Joan and the soldiers around her might do if they entered Paris and... What, turn them into rats? (laughs) Yeah, maybe. So when Joan approached the walls to ask the city to surrender to its rightful king, um, as she had to so many places before, she was greeted with misogynistic jeers and slurs from the walls. And not only did the Parisians refuse to come out and treat with her, they started firing at her. 
Yeah, so Joan responded by ordering an assault of the walls, like, immediately. Uh, Like a hastier assault. But her troops, the ones that did charge forward were poorly organized. The the others that didn't charge forward, they sort of hesitated too long. Joan didn't receive enough support with this charge. So she ended up getting shot in the leg, of course. Ouch. And uh, she fell into the ditch encircling the walls, while one of her pages was killed right in front of her. Oh, her first loss. Yeah. So one of Joan's companions, uh, Sir Raoul de Gaucourt, who was a veteran of the civil wars, he returned to retrieve Joan from the ditch. Um, and he And he led her back to camp while Joan uh, swore by St. Martin and she cried, we could have taken the place like all the way back to the camp. This skirmish was a, a big, uh, a whoopsie daisy. Um, it claimed the lives of 500 Frenchmen and left a thousand wounded. And Damn. this was also Joan's first defeat. Yeah. So... As quickly as as morale had ascended when she first appeared, it now plummeted as people realized mm. that Joan was not only fallible and human, but perhaps even foolish. Mm. And Joan was filled with rage, and she channeled that rage in not-so-healthy ways. Um, so in an incident, which I'm not happy to leave in here, Joan is said yeah. to have run into one of those camp followers that she hated so much. Uh. And according to Alençon, she, quote, broke her sword on the woman's back. Yeah. After which the king, who, as we'll learn, is rather a friend of loose women, the king reprimanded Joan and uh, said that she should have used a stick rather than the flat of her sword. And uh, the bourgeois leaders of Paris used stories like this against Joan, saying that she was a cruel and violent woman who would often beat those around her, uh, and this is part of their sort of fear-mongering. Joan's rage only increased in September, uh, as summer drew to a close, King Charles disbanded the army and went back home to the Loire Valley. Well, can blame it. It's the end of summer. You don't really fight in winter. We know that. No, but also the army it, uh, the army has been hanging around outside pa- Paris. Way too long. Uh, since, since July. Damn. Yeah. So they've had like all of August, basically, and, and nothing has nothing. happened. Just wasting money. So not only does Charles abandon Joan, he also separates Joan from... Alençon. Oh. Um, so Alençon was ordered to go home to his wife, and then he went to Normandy to try to retake his holdings there from the English. Because yeah. um, Alençon itself, the city of Alençon, is in Normandy. Yeah. So Alençon requested that the king send Joan to Normandy to aid him, uh, but by now Charles was <laughs> like, deeply nope. suspicious of the two of them together. She didn't trust yeah. them after what happened at Paris. Yeah, can't blame him. Yeah, so instead, the king assigned Joan to accompany his commander, Charles of Albray, uh, in a number of minor little side quests to retake (laughs) castles in the central western region uh, between Berry, Burgundy, and Paris. And uh, this included a failed attempt to besiege La Charité, uh, which had uh, been taken by some routier mercenaries. Oh, So this kind of occupied Joan for the remainder of 1429. And while she felt she had no choice but to obey King Charles, she was not a happy camper. Mm -hmm. And it was only a matter of time before she went rogue. Yeah, I can Um, imagine. Yeah. Made a little snipe comments, running around mumbling under her breath about the king. So hearing that the Anglo-Burgundians were starting to regain ground and pillage or threaten the lands in Champagne that the French had taken, uh, Joan led a small contingent north 
and mm-hmm. she managed to defeat a superior English force at Lanyi, mm. imprisoning their leader and having him tried and beheaded in the nearby mm. town, um, which was considered a bit high-handed um, yeah. by some. A lot of people saw this as like vigilante justice on Joan's part. Although Joan is um, later said that she but didn't order. Well, there was. She said there was like an actual proper like civil trial, and there was like a local jury and that sort of thing. So like she's like, no, it was a fair trial, and other people mm-hmm. saying no, it was just Joan pointing at someone and and getting them beheaded. At Lanyi, Joan is also said to have performed a miracle by yes. resuscitating a dying child. Uh, oh. which is the only instance we get of Joan having healing powers. Um, throughout her career before this, she said, I'm not a healer when people asked her uh, to heal them. But now she seems to have sort of like changed. CPR. <laughs> and maybe this is just her increased confidence um, yeah. playing into this. Yeah. Well, God's giving her more powers. <laughs> yeah. You talked about the war season sort of ending at the end of summer. It doesn't yeah. really. It kind of continues into September um, and, like, even into December. Really? That's late. Yeah. Well, in, in France, it doesn't get really cold, and you're still sort of harvesting crops and stuff, like, all the way into January. Oh. Um, so it's really, like, January and February that Joan sort of takes a break. And she spent this break uh, northeast of Paris around Compiègne and Soissons, the old oh. stomping ground of the, the old Frankish kings. <laughs> and uh, there's a winter's truce between France and Burgundy. Um, nice. She's probably not too happy about that. Yeah, when it expires in uh, March, uh, Joan once again goes straight to the offensive. Um, (laughs) Now, by this point, communication between Joan and the royal court had completely broken down. Mm. Um, So Joan was now basically doing her own thing. But she doesn't seem to realize the extent to which she had completely lost the support of the king. Because while Joan had been effectively sort of shunned and distanced from court, it wouldn't necessarily have appeared that way to to Joan. Mm. Um, So the king had still, like, showered her with honours. He had ennobled her family by this point. He'd made her brothers knights. And he had exempted her her entire village from taxes for a year out of uh, gratitude. Yeah. So in her book, The Virgin Warrior, I think Larissa Juliet Taylor puts it very well. So she says... The subtleties of court politics, especially those of La Tremouille, were lost on Joan. Pieces of a puzzle she never figured out. She heard what she wanted to hear, that the king would no longer make truces with Burgundy, and that she would be able to take the fight to them. The increasing disjunction between the royal strategy concocted by Charles and his counsellors, and Joan's continuing desire for military action and success, was instrumental in her marginalisation and eventual downfall. Mm. She could not understand why Charles did not see the larger picture, even though it was Joan who, for all her amazing accomplishments in war, did not see why reconciliation with Burgundy was vital. Mm. So yeah, even though progress was being made with the negotiations between Charles VII and the Burgundians, in April 1430, when the warring season resumed, all Joan saw was failure on the French part, as an Anglo-Burgundian force had started to threaten Compiègne, which by this point is now France's most important strongholds up north. Mm. And which, by the way, they wouldn't have retaken unless Joan had ordered the march to Rennes. So while Burgundy's ally, John of Luxembourg, approached with the besieging force, so Joan left Compiègne alongside the Archbishop of Rennes and the Count of Vendôme, to rally some reinforcements in Soissons, the neighbouring city. Mm. 
But when she got to Soissons, she was refused entry as this as that city had capitulated to the Burgundians. Oh. So Joan, the Archbishop, and the Count had to retreat back to Compiègne, but Luxembourg's army had beaten them there. Oh. There's a besieging force now outside Compiègne, and Joan was advised to leave the region to get more reinforcements, and I think this is what the Archbishop did. Um, yeah. But I she refused. Joan saw it as like a... They were trying to, like, hush hush her away, kind of. But Joan refused, and she managed to sneak past the besiegers into Compiègne, which is the exact same thing she'd done at Orléans. When she wanted to go to church. Well, no, no, because remember, Orléans, she she managed to sneak past the English defences to go into the city and stuff. She snuck to get to go to church. Oh, yeah, yeah. But this is different. This is her sneaking past a a besieging army who's, like, trying to keep people out of the city. Yeah, Joan kind of thinks that she can pull another Orléans and Mm. successfully beat back. (laughs) But it turns out that the the Burgundians are a bit better at besieging than uh, the English are. Um, So, (laughs) on the 23rd of May, 11 days after Luxembourg began the siege, Joan made the fateful decision to accompany some of her troops and to sortie across the the long stone bridge leading out of Compiègne, hoping to sort of scare off the besiegers Mm -hmm. on the other side of the river Oise. Yeah. So, she made sure to wear her most magnificent red and gold livery, um, Mm -hmm. mounted on a silver horse, to impress her allies and frighten her enemies. And the sortie at first had the intended effect, and the Burgundians encamped near the bridge were chased off. The French troops under Joan then dug in and continued to win ground over the course of the day, and they chased off more Burgundians back to their camp. But then around 6pm, Joan was suddenly targeted by a surprise cavalry ambush. Despite Joan's insistence that they stand and fight, the men around her broke and they headed back towards the city. And Joan had no choice but to follow. A Burgundian chronicler, this is a Burgundian chronicler, later (laughs) praised her for being the last to retreat and putting herself between her men and their attackers. I think part of that is that Joan knows that no one's going to try to like actually kill her they're going to want to capture her because she's much more valuable alive Alive. than dead yeah yeah but joan retreated too late and by the time she got to the bridge luxembourg's troops had come round um to the back of her to block her path and the city of compiègne had also closed its gates fearing that the burgundians would try to get in yeah while this chaos was happening so joan she attempted to surrender with dignity but one of the Burgundian archers grabbed her by her cloak and threw her to the ground. And she attempted to get back up and mount her horse, but she couldn't as other Burgundians surged forward to seize her. And Joan submitted her surrender to the nearest commander, who's called the Bastard of Vendôme, um, Mm. who is said to have been so chuffed uh, (laughs) that he, quote, may as well have captured a king. At first, it's not immediately apparent that Joan is going to, like, go on trial or anything. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. She's a prisoner of war. She's not a criminal. Yeah. Um, And she's treated like any other important political prisoner. So Mm -hmm. John of Luxembourg put her in the castle of Beaulieu-les-Fontaines, just uh, north of Compiègne. Mm -hmm. And she was kept there for six weeks. Um, during which time she tried to escape numerous times. So she was sent further north to the more well-fortified castle of Beaurevoir in Artois, um, which was the residence of Luxembourg's aunt, um, who's also called Joan, 
because there's too many drones. Um, <laughs> but she's she's often called uh, the Demoiselle de, Lu- de Luxembourg. Mm. And she was both a powerful countess and a kindly spinster. Um, nice. Who did her best to make Joan stay comfortable. But what was comfortable for a normal 18-year-old girl was not comfortable for Joan, um, who <laughs> refused to change out of her men's clothes still. And she found the weeks of tedious waiting unbearable as the Burgundians decided what to do with her. At one point, she injured herself jumping out of a tower window into a dry moat. Ouch. So, yeah. Did she not notice there wasn't any water in that moat? <laughs> it's unclear. <laughs> but but I think she was just like, anything to get me out of the castle, you know. So bloody boring. Even if I risk injury. So the, the Demoiselle de Luxembourg, she told her nephew not to hand Joan over to the English, saying she would cut him out of her will if he did. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So she's really looking out for Joan. Nice. But John of Luxembourg was eventually enticed by a sum of 10,000 leaves mm. offered by the English in exchange for Joan of Arc. And so she was sent to Rouen, the English capital in Normandy, in October yeah. 1430, five months into her imprisonment. This is a long time. And uh, she was held in a tower of Rouen Castle, uh, the Duke of Bedford's home. And mm. uh, over the next four months, a group of prosecutors put together the case for her for a trial, uh, which would begin the following February. Now, it's important to note, while Joan is being tried in Rouen, which is the seat of the English government in France, yeah. she is not being tried by the English government itself. Okay. So... She's being tried by a council of French bishops and Parisian scholars who come to Rouen specifically for this trial. And this is the trial of the century. It's a huge event. Uh, Not just because Joan is such a sensational figure for people at the time, but because Bedford and his allies, most notably Pierre Cochon, the Bishop of Beauvais, who is essentially the the leading figure of this trial. He's also a cardinal as well. Yeah, yeah. They see this as an opportunity to repudiate the recent run of French victories, um, yeah. saying they weren't acts of God, they were acts of the devil. That was the work of the devil. Yeah. yeah. And that Joan was sent not by God, but by Satan to lead the French astray from their rightful king, who is, of course, Henry VI of England. And this is why this trial becomes the most meticulously well documented legal procedure of the 15th century. Hmm. It's because the English and those loyal to them within France really want to hammer home this point that Charles VII is illegitimate. The only reason he got crowned is because of this witch and we're going to prove that she's a witch. And ironically, because it's been so meticulously recorded and it survives in physical form for us today, this trial also makes Joan one of the most vividly remembered people of the Middle Ages. Because both Joan's testimony at the trial and also the later attempts to refute the trial by people who knew Joan, who, like, give testimony about her, this has, like, preserved her voice and, uh, Mm. like, who she was so beautifully. Which is just incredible for a peasant girl. The irony. Yeah, it's so ironic. Um, So it's important to remember this is not a modern trial, though. Yeah. So Joan doesn't get a barrister... There's no jury of her peers. There's no objective judge. There's Joan on one side, alone, and then there's a bunch of robed men on the other side. And each of them takes turns uh, grilling, interrogating, manipulating, and at times psychologically torturing her into admitting what they want her to admit. Yeah. Yeah. What they want to hear. 
and, and eventually like as the trial gets more intense they move it from being a public trial in like a big hall to people coming into joan's cell and uh um interrogating her in her own cell like in her space oh, i just kind of get a bloody sleep yeah this is like humiliating and horrible for joan uh, not only is she outnumbered and outclassed by these rows upon rows of old men she's also an illiterate peasant girl who claims to hear voices from god but yet has never had a formal theological education yeah. so she doesn't know half of the references that these men are like throwing yeah. at her and on top of that she continues to wear men's clothes. She refuses to change into women's clothes. And this is a big issue for the church. And the reason she doesn't is she's saying, you know, my mission isn't complete. And the voices have told me I can't take off my men's clothes until my mission is complete. Yeah. But I think it's also partly for safety as well, because yeah. it's um, it's harder to assault her if she's wearing a, like men's hose. Yeah. And also who can blame her? It's probably more comfortable. It's pretty, yeah, maybe yeah. it is to move around um, it, I mean. Well, yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's it's speculated, and this is, of, of course, just speculation, that, like, Joan c- could even have been, like, you know, um, like, trans or non-binary or something, because she mm-hmm. she wanted to present as, as male. Yeah. So, Joan is essentially set up to fail in this trial. Fast. The point of the trial is not to give her a chance to prove her innocence, it's to discredit her, and by extension, Charles okay. VII. Which is why Charles himself is very quiet during Joan's imprisonment. He doesn't want to be associated with her if she's proved yeah. a heretic. So he goes radio silence on uh, Joan. Mm. But despite being outflanked at every turn by the rhetoric of these educated lawyers and bishops, Joan did remarkably well at answering both honestly nice. and evasively. And she made their lives hell by being uncooperative <laughs> at every turn. Yes. Um. So in her words, recorded at the trial, she she said, If I ever do escape, no one shall reproach me with having broken or violated my faith, not having given my word to anyone, whosoever it may be. And like she refused, like after the first time she swears like an oath of honesty at the first um, hearing, she refuses yeah. to swear that again because she's like, I've already sworn that. Yeah, and she's constantly being ask the same questions over and over again oh in God. different ways. They're trying to like catch her out with an inconsistency. And she it's usually like the American just American resp- legal system. Yeah. And she usually just responds, you know, I've already answered that, move on. Yeah. She knows what they're trying to do at certain Maybe that's where some of the American police that was inspired <laughs> by medieval Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well medieval inquisitions, yeah, very much are in that kind of vein of like shining the lamp in someone's face and like being like tell me what you know and uh also part of this is like joan not wanting to give away like military secrets to yeah uh the, the other anime. side as well and that's like part of why she justifies not swearing an oath so when the guilty verdict came it was hardly surprising of course for joan yeah but it seems from joan's words that she had been sort of staying brave and resolute with the expectation mm. that god would rescue her because her mm. mission wasn't complete of course yeah. so she wasn't meant to die yet and there were indeed attempts to rescue her. For example, one of her companions, a mercenary knight called Lahir, which means the Fury, um, <laughs> he tried to organize uh, a, an escape, uh, yeah. but they were no match for the, the ring of steel around Ruan. It like had become basically like the most high security prison um, in the world. Uh, yeah. So once that plan had failed, there unfortunately was no nobody coming to Joan's rescue. So. Yeah. When the church delivered a guilty verdict and handed Joan over to the civil authorities of Rouen, 
because the church never executes people, by the way. That's always up to the civil authorities. So once the church has handed out its judgment, they hand her over to the English officially to give her a sentence. And uh, she was st- she was stood like tied up in front of a jeering crowd while her sentence of burning was read out, Ooh. being burned to death. God, and Joan realized at this point that no one was coming to rescue her. And there's this really heartbreaking moment when Joan, uh, yeah. seemingly for the first time she, since she began her mission, loses her nerve. She calls someone into her cell, and on the 24th of May, 1431, she recants. <gasps> oh. So she says, I wasn't sent by God, the voices aren't real. You know, she's trying to live, basically. Yeah, who can blame her, though? Yeah. But four days later, she took it back and she reaffirmed her faith in her voices. Mm. Um, so, yeah, Joan t- told her jailers when she took it back, she said she had only recanted, quote, for fear of the fire. Mm-hmm. But now she realized that she had only two choices. And those choices were life imprisonment, if she did recant, or burning to death if she didn't recant. So there was no way back to freedom. Yeah. And Joan probably thought it was better to stick to her guns and go to heaven rather than recant, live a long and miserable life, and risk poetry or hell, yeah. yeah. So by this point, the secular <laughs> authorities now handling Joan's case had forced her out of her men's clothes, and she was now wearing a linen shift. Um, and they had shaved her head as well. And this is the state in which, on the 30th of May, 1431, exactly a year and one week after her capture at Compiègne, at the age wow. of 19... Joan was tied to a stake erected in the town square of Rouen, and the pyre beneath her feet was lit. And a few hours later, her ashes were tossed unceremoniously into the River Seine. Uh, And that is the end of Joan of Arc's life. And how long it takes her body to burn? Being pained for minute, like ages. Yeah, it's a a slow and really awful death. Like yeah. before your body burns up, like you 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 suffocate to death from the smoke, um, and the smoke from your body. Yeah, and by that point, you, your your legs are burned. For death. Like, yeah, it's it's really horrible. Um, but Joan's story doesn't end with her death because her afterlife is just as much of a roller coaster as her life. Even if Charles and the royal court sort of undermined her achievements and ignored her execution for a while because they were continuing to try to get the reconciliation with Burgundy, um, many of the people of France, particularly in places like Orléans, um, were still like, well, were outraged at what had happened to Joan and also celebrated her. Um, So in Orléans, there is still to this day a festival in honour to Joan every year and this this was this has been celebrated since 1431 when she died wow and about 20 years after her death in 1450 Charles perhaps due to popular demand perhaps because it was weighing on his conscience um Mm -hmm. ordered a legal inquiry into Joan's trial which basically concluded that you know what we've known all along it was unfair it was rigged it was arbitrary and there were massive conflict of interests involved like like, all of the bishops present were bishops that were allied to the English and the Burgundians. There was no representation of either the the Pope, who was pro-French at this point, or of, you know, 
the bishops from the rest of France. Yeah. So over the next five years after 1450, Joan's life underwent a thorough investigation with recorded interviews of Alençon, the, the bust of Orléans, other yeah. companions, um, and even the ordinary villagers of Domremy. Oh. Um, so we know the names of like Joan's like childhood friends and stuff like wow. that. Like it's crazy. Cool. And uh, also Joan's mother uh, went on a pilgrimage to Rome to ask the Pope to canonize. No, not not that far. <laughs> Pardon? Yeah, well, to 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 rehabilitate her, her daughter's you know legacy because Joan at this point she was she was executed for heresy, witchcraft, and cross dressing. Those were her crimes. God, they sound like great crimes. Yeah. If I'm going to be accused of a crime, I want to be accused of those. So yeah, there's this huge uh, project to compile all of this testimony in support of Joan. And it kind of reminds me of everything that was compiled to canonize uh, Louis IX. Um, mm. There were all of these, these suddenly like new chronicles springing up of like people trying to like glorify the king so that the Pope yeah. had a reason to canonize him. Yeah. Only, of course, the aim wasn't to canonize Joan, uh, although she was already a- effectively being treated like a saint by many in France. Yeah. Um, it was done just to nullify the verdict of her trial. So it's called the nullification trial. Uh, and it was concluded in a posthumous retrial approved by Pope Calixtus III, um, who, by the way, is the uncle of Rodrigo Borgia or Alexander oh. VI. Yeah. Who we're starting to get to. Um, oh, nice. But I didn't know that there were older Borgia popes than that. But apparently there, yeah. there were. Yeah, I do like the Borgias. Yeah, I love the Borgias. The Cretzi is my fave. I can't wait until Pontifax gets to the Borgia popes. Oh, um, yeah. So over the centuries, the legend of Joan of Arc grew and grew. A lot of tall tales sprung up around her. And some women even pretended to be her, like escaped well, from execution. No, yeah. like escaped. Like, oh, like, <laughs> an- like Anastasia. Yeah, it's very Anastasia, actually. And there, there is this one woman, I can't remember what her name was. She popped up and uh, she became famous. And she eventually confessed that she wasn't Joan of Arc, but she got a really good noble marriage out of it. So nice. <laughs> good on her. <laughs> yeah, um, if you're going to scam people, may as well scam them and get something out of it. Yeah. And there's a lot of tall tales about like things that happened around like Joan's execution and that sort of thing. I've, like, I've left most of those out. Like light shines um, or something. Yeah, I've really just talked about stuff that is more reliable uh, in these episodes. Um, so I've left out all of a lot of the tall tales um, and stuff and the mythology. Yeah. But even if, you know, you're an atheist like me who doesn't believe in voices from God, uh, yeah. you can still admire her conviction and her talent and her courage. And moving forward in time, Joan becomes a figure that everyone kind of can agree is amazing uh, for different mm. reasons. So religious or non-religious, Catholic or Protestant, monarchist, socialist, liberal, Mm. conservative, everyone seems to like Joan of Arc. In fact, in the Second World War, both the Vichy regime, who are basically the like Nazi puppet regime, and the French resistance both used her as a figurehead in propaganda, like at the same time. (laughs) When in doubt, choose Joan. And... You can see a reflection of that today as well. And I've actually like discussed this with French people. Apparently Joan is today being used as a figurehead for like the alt-right in France. The iconography of Joan of Arc is being used by like fascists, racists, mm. anti-Semites. 
But at the same time, she's also held up on the other side as this, like, feminist, like, non-binary kind of figure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, across the pond, Zendaya, who's, like, a left-wing feminist woman of colour, dressed as Joan of Arc at the 2018 Met Met Gala. Mm. And I can't think of any other figure throughout all of history who has the same sort of reach across so many different identities. And she's, like, Mm. um, iconic to so many people. (laughs) If we were rating Joan of Arc, she would get 10 out of 10 in Enchante. That's, like, without a doubt. (laughs) But to rewind a little, though, Joan's modern popularity really begins in the romantic movement of the 19th Uh, century. Yeah, of course. When people, yeah, were, of course, becoming fascinated with the medieval world, um, which the 17th and 18th centuries had kind of dismissed because they were like, yeah. we are the Enlightenment, we're better than those medieval people. Yeah. Uh, but the 19th century were, were, were suddenly like, you know, oh, oh but wasn't it wasn't it romantic and lovely and Camelot like, and died? knights and yeah. And this movement is the whole reason we talk about 19th century portraits in all of our mm. medieval kings episodes. Yeah. Um, they're a result of French people in this period suddenly becoming interested in <laughs> the pre-Renaissance France. Yeah. So yeah, this is when we get the majority of representations of Joan in the 19th yeah. century, which listeners can find in abundance with a Google search. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll put some of them on the, on the Instagram. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing the way that Joan has endured like no other figure, like not even Charlemagne has the kind of clout that Joan of Arc has. Even the Simpsons did an episode of her. Exactly. Oh, Lisa's Joan of Arc. Yes. Uh, perfect casting. Um <laughs> So zooming in around 1900, 1910, there were radical feminists like dressing up as Joan of Arc and riding through the streets during the suffragette movement. Oh my God. But at the same time, once again, the contrast in politics, the Catholic Church, which I think we can all agree was a pretty conservative organization, um, were finally considering canonizing Joan. Mm. And she was officially canonized by Pope Benedict XV on the 16th of May, 1920. Um, the church very carefully categorized her as a virgin saint rather than a martyr saint, um, because they were tiptoeing around the issue that the Catholic church itself had killed her, (laughs) (laughs) which was the major sticking point that had stopped her from being canonized up to this point. So I think this means that Joan of Arc is the only Catholic saint to have been killed by the Catholic church, which is kind of interesting. So I'll finish with one little tidbit of Joan of Arc uh, lore yes. that I love. So the date of 1920 being the year of Joan's canonization, mm-hmm. and therefore a year in which publicity around her must have spiked, is really interesting. Because guess what crazy new hairstyle suddenly spiked in popularity that year? Short hair? The bob. Yeah. Also known as the page boy haircut. Uh, which mm. in French fashion magazines was referred to as the Joan of Arc style. Mm. So in a recent art review article, Rosalind Yana refers to Joan as, quote, the patron saint of high fashion, um, <laughs> which I think is just an interesting full circle moment for Joan, who was executed partly for how she dressed. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think Joan would be very happy that women today can kind of wear whatever they want. Yeah. So that's my Joan of Arc episode. Um, this was very difficult for me to research and write. You did a very good job. Not just because of like how much there is out there on Joan of Arc, but because, you know, I've been obsessed with Joan of Arc for, since I was very young. So this, uh, has been a long time coming. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> this was my mission from, from God, this episode. <laughs> Maybe it's your mission from Satan. <laughs> yeah, this this episode was my Ram's coronation, which I guess means it's all, it's all downhill from here. The rest of the podcast is going to be crap. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Because we are about to enter an exciting point in the podcast. We're about to enter <laughs> the Renaissance. Uh, is, is coming and but we're we entering our mistress era as well Yay. yeah so next episode uh on the free feed we're finally getting to charles the seventh and also from this point we're officially going back to fortnightly episodes yeah. but there's excitement in store on the patreon because we're gonna Yay. start our mistress series and these are gonna come out like on the off weeks between our king's episodes Starting from, of course, Charles VII, who had the first official royal mistress, Agnes Sorel. Yay! I love her. So this is going to be like a whole like parallel spin-off series. Yeah. Nice. And there's going to be a new Patreon tier that we're going to create uh, for people who just want to listen to the mistress episodes. What's that going to be called? If it's not something to have tits, I'm, I'm going to call it the boudoir. Oh. Do, do you want to call it something with something to do with tits? <laughs> yeah, because Agnes... I don't know if we can get away with that. <laughs> yeah, okay, we'll do the boudoir. The tits out brigade. <laughs> there are a surprising amount of portraits of various French royal mistresses uh, with their tits out. Well, if you've got them, show them. <laughs> Let us know what we should call the this, the mistress tier. Um, no, we can stick with your one. And just I liked bo- I like boudoir. It's, it's good. Like, I'm just messing with you. Because it's a, it's it's like a place, and the others are like places. Like there's the VIP box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll stick with and that. And behind the scene, there's there's the boudoir. I'm just messing with you. And uh, as we've already said on Patreon, those subscribe to the higher tiers, so Economy Plus and VIP, will also get these episodes <laughs> plus the monthly bonus episodes that you're already yeah. getting. And this month, we're releasing two of those episodes. We're doing one yeah. on The Messenger, which is the major Hollywood film about Joan's life. Um which we may or may not be r- ripping to shreds like we did with The Last Jewel. And yeah, Eliza hasn't seen it yet, so you need to watch it. I, I didn't want you to watch it until after we'd done this yeah. episode. So now you're going to have okay. to go find it. <laughs> okay. I don't know where it is, <laughs> but we'll find it. We'll hunt it down. And we're also doing an episode on one of Joan's companions, uh, Gilles de Ray, who Yay! later become known becomes known as the most notorious serial killer of the Middle Ages. Cool. So that'll be a fun sort of true crimey sort of episode, which contains both family legal drama and bloody occult rituals. So cool. get ready for that. But yes, so to listen to that this month, along with 18 months worth of other bonus episodes, you got to yeah. give us a bit of spare change and support the podcast on the Patreon. Yes, please. Oh, and I got to thank a couple new patrons. Yes. Um, so thank you to new patron Marshall Newman for joining Economy Plus. So can I hear that, that Newman? I just think of Seinfeld. And I see Marshall's been very active on the Facebook as well, which I appreciate. Um, And also... You sound like an old person when you're like, the Instagram, the Facebook. I called it it Facebook. Yeah, you said the Facebook. Oh, the Facebook as in like (laughs) the Facebook group. I know, but you just don't say the word group. You just go the Facebook. I, well, I am a granny, um, and I'm ha- I'm a proud granny. Yeah. Um, and uh, also, 
Guess who just joined the VIP box? Who? My parents did. Aww. <laughs> so thank you to them. Um, thank you and, to my dad o'clock. Yeah, so, um, yeah. With that cool. said, I hope you all enjoyed the Joan of Arc episode. Um, and, oh, I should also mention, speaking of the VIP box, Joan of Arc is in the VIP box, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, right. I'm not sure she'll be that happy to be next to, like, Fredegon and stuff, but, you know. Nah, I think her and Fredegon will get along. But, uh, yeah, I don't know, Eleanor of Aquitaine might be like, oh, this this peasant girl is, is, is very uncouth. Yes. <laughs> and Joan will be like, that English queen. But, yeah, Joan definitely belongs there, so. Yes. She gets to sit there. And everyone just has to like it or lump it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so with all that said, we're going to head off now and yeah. um, we're next going to be recording those Patreon episodes, the Juicy yeah. Juicy Patreons and King Charles Seventh, And we're finally going to be reaching the end of the Hundred Years' War. Yay! Finally. It has felt like a hundred years, hasn't it? It really has. It really has. All right. So that's going to be au revoir from me. Goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.